Today we finish up the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark 13. Uh, it's uh, it's a, a long chapter, and really there's no way to tackle it but to tackle the whole chapter. So guess what we're going to do today? We are going to read and teach through an entire chapter of the Bible, and this will be a good, dramatic conclusion to our study in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles out in the floor. We would love to give you one. That would be our gift to you. I'm going to read straight through the entire chapter. We'll pray, and we'll get to work unpacking what God wants to teach us today. So read along with me if you would. Mark 13, beginning in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to the trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand, about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. See also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation 
will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. Lord God, we come to your word today with a great amount of thanksgiving. God, we're so thankful that you have given us your word that we might know you. And God, today we, we come to this passage and there's a lot to digest and there's a lot of warnings and a lot of judgment and a lot of uh, symbolic language and even things that are difficult to understand. God, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive. God, we want to be those readers who understand. God, I pray you would guard my lips. Would you help me to teach only that which is your truth? And I pray for all of us that we would be captivated. Our attention would be on Jesus Christ and him alone. And it's in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. A few, weeks about, uh, a few weeks ago when I started looking at the sermon schedule and kind of checking on where we're going over the next couple weeks, I saw that Pastor Shane uh, had to do the, the, the privilege, had the privilege of teaching on the really controversial passage of the Bible that wasn't actually in the Bible. You guys remember that from last week? He taught on the longer ending of Mark 16, and so I was laughing at him, as I should do, right? Ha ha, you have to teach a really difficult topic. But then I looked to the next week and I thought, oh no, I have to teach on Mark 13, the really controversial passage that is part of the Bible. So you don't have to be a, a person who's that familiar with the scriptures. You don't have to be a regular churchgoer. When people start talking about the end times, when they start using language like abomination of desolation, when they start using phrases like coming on the clouds and uh, the, the sun and the moon being shaken, you start to see some eyebrows going up, right? Even the most secular among us have seen movies with the end of the world, or maybe they've seen trailers for left-behind movies or things like that. The, the end of the world, the, the, the eschatological end, if you want a big $5 word, the eschatology uh, talk, conversation, discussion is a big deal, and people have about as many different opinions on it as you can imagine. It talks about brother against brother and father against son. That's kind of what it's like when you study end times things. So I come to this passage today with, with a great deal of sober-mindedness. My hope and my prayer is that today you would see not only what this passage means, but you'd see how it actually applies to our lives as Christians. That's my hope and my prayer every week, but that's my prayer especially for us today. I actually intentionally want us to see the ways in which this can actually make sense and have an impact on our lives. But in order to do that, I want to set up a few, uh, can I call them guidelines or maybe some ground rules that we need to keep in mind whenever we come to passages that are prophetic in nature or are more symbolic in nature or are uh, apocalyptic in nature. I want to give us six guidelines so that we can be thinking clearly as we come to this text. So let me give these to you quickly. The first one is this, and this one might be a little bit frustrating, but it's we can't and won't understand everything, okay? 
God gave us his word. In his word, we have everything that we need to know for life and for salvation and for godliness. Amen? God has not made those things secret. God has not made those things hidden. But just because God gives us everything that we need to know does not mean that he gives us everything we want to know. And in fact, in this passage, Mark himself says in parentheses, let the reader understand. He's, he's essentially telling us, this is going to be kind of tough to understand. There's one of the uh, apostles, one of the writers of the Bible, Peter, he writes in one of his letters that Paul, who's also writing letters of the Bible, Paul writes some things that are really hard to understand. We can know God truly, but we may not know anything and everything that we wish to know. So we need to come to the text with humility. The second guideline or, or ground rule I want to give us is we need to look for the author's intent and we need to push back against our own assumptions. These authors wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God is the ultimate author of the Bible, amen? But he worked through human beings. He worked through men and he, wrote, he gave these books. They were written in a particular place and in a particular time. And you and I are separated by many centuries, a couple of millennia now, and several thousand years, and culture is different, and the, the time is different. It's easy to come to these passages with a set of lenses, as it were, and we bring a lot of assumptions. We bring a lot of baggage, especially when it comes to end times things. Would you agree? So we need to look for what the author is intending to tell us, not just our own assumptions. Number three, to answer this question, are we living in the end times? The biblical answer is absolutely, 100%, yes. Ever since Jesus got up out of the tomb, we have been living in the end times. The first sermon that the apostle Peter preached after the day of Pentecost, he said, in these last days or in these end times. Sometimes people wanna say, well, are we in the end times? Are we not? You don't need to have any fear. You don't need to have any worry. You don't need to have any lack of clarity. The answer is yes, because when Jesus died in our place for our sins and when he rose again, he inaugurated a new creation. He is the first fruits, the Bible tells us, of much more that is to come. So we are living in the last days. We're living in the final period of, of human history. And we have been for 2,000 years. Number four, eschatology. That's the, that's the big word that means last things or the study of the end. If you want to use that at your company picnic, you're welcome to. Just don't tell them that you learned it from me, right? Eschatology is not primarily about the end of the world, but it's about the ends to which God is leading the world. God is sovereign over human history. God is sovereign over kings, over nations, over all the story of human history, and God is leading his creation to his desired end of the story. So we must remember that when we talk about eschatology, when we talk about end times, we talk about last things, we're not talking about the four or five years before Jesus returns. No, we're talking about the whole sweep of redemptive history, that God has had a plan since the beginning of time to save people, to redeem them, to bring a new creation into being, and he will do it in his way and in his time. So when we talk about end times, when we talk about eschatology, let's have a bigger picture. It's not just about the tribulation or the, the so-called rapture or things like that. It's, it's about the sweep of history. Number five, we have to remember that the Bible frequently uses figurative or symbolic or even apocalyptic language. The word apocalypse doesn't mean like 
destruction or end of the world. It means a, a peel, a, like a peeling away of a veil or a look behind the curtain, so to speak. You see all these things are going on. Let me, let me peel back the curtain and show you what's really going on. The Bible uses that type of language. Sometimes uh, people who want to take the Bible very seriously, and I commend them for that. We should always want to take the Bible seriously. They get a little bit itchy when they hear uh, people start talking about symbolism and figurative language. Because sometimes people will use symbolism and figurative language to, to uh, actually deny the inspiration and the authority of God's word. And so while I can commend that concern, let me say to you this. Taking the Bible literally means that we need to read the Bible, the various authors, as they intended to be read. You do not read history the same way that you read a psalm. And you do not read a proverb the same way that you read figurative, apocalyptic, prophetic language. Would you agree with that? To, to be faithful to the Bible means you look at the different genres, the different ways that they were written. We don't want to be literalistic. We do want to take the Bible literally. And that means remembering that oftentimes there are figurative or symbolic types of language used in the Bible, and that actually is doing it justice. And then the last thing, number six, the last ground rule or guideline I want to give us is this. We must remember that God's kingdom is already and not yet. What do I mean by that? I mean that, thank you, thank you for asking. Um, I mean that there are verses in the Bible, Jesus himself speaks of the kingdom of God as being here. It will come quickly. The kingdom of God is present. It's among you. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said. And yet there are passages that talk about the kingdom that is to come. The kingdom is growing. Or Jesus said it's like a, a mustard seed that you plant in the ground and then it grows over time and spreads and becomes a place where all the birds can come and gather in its branches. The kingdom of God is something that we long for. The kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns. And the kingdom of God was inaugurated with Jesus, his death on the cross and his victorious resurrection. But the kingdom of God is not yet here in full. The kingdom is here the kingdom is to come? Well, which is it? And the answer is yes. It's a tension. It's hard for us to live in that tension. We want it to be black or white, one or the other. God, you said your kingdom is here, but then I see sickness and suffering and sin and death still going on. God, you said your kingdom is coming, but I see so many good things about your kingdom here. There's love. There's people getting saved. There's people getting healed. The kingdom is here. Which is it? The answer is both. And for us, we must learn to live in that tension. There's a, there's a really good analogy from World War II. It's really helpful for us. I'll share it with you. You've probably heard me or maybe another uh, preacher use this analogy, but it's a good one. When you ask somebody, when did World War II end, the correct textbook answer is on VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. That happened in, let me check my dates here, May of 1945. I wasn't alive then. Some of you were, right? May of 1945. But any good war historian will tell you that World War II did not actually end on that date. It was almost a year earlier, 11 months earlier, 1944, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and won that decisive battle. Any war historian will tell you that it was in 1944 at D-Day when the war was essentially over. The Allied forces got uh, ground back again on the mainland of the, the European continent, and from that day forward, it was all but a done deal that Hitler and the, the, the Axis powers were gonna just be wiped out. But they still had some battles to go through, and they still had some skirmishes, and there still was real warfare and real casualty. 
But then almost a year later, the final end came. Now imagine that you're a soldier living in there. Like, boy, we've, we've won the victory. We've won the battle. The, the back of the enemy is broken. Why is there still fighting going on? That's kind of how we find ourselves. We in, live in the overlap of the ages. The kingdom is already here and not yet fully here. That's so, so important for us to remember as Christians, okay? With that in place, with those six guidelines in place, let's attack this entire chapter and may God have mercy on all our souls. I'm, I'm gonna do this. I'm just gonna kind of put my cards out on the table right from the get-go. People read chapters like this and passages uh, in a variety of different ways, and I just want you to know where I'm coming from. My view, and you are allowed to disagree with me on this, not while I'm preaching later, but you are allowed to disagree with me on this, that my perspective is that Jesus is primarily, in this chapter, not speaking about his final return at the end of the age, but he is speaking about an event that took place in 70 AD, but there are implications for us as we wait for the final return of Jesus. I think that Jesus is mostly speaking about something that happened in the first century, and I'll try my best to prove it to you, and then I'll try my best uh, to show you how that applies to our lives. Verse one, and he came out of the temple, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, pause for a second, Rewind a few weeks ago when I taught about uh, Jesus clearing out the temple. Remember Jesus, the last week before his death, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was celebrated. He was praised as the coming king. He went into the temple. He cleared out the temple of the money changers, and then he left and went back out to Bethany, and he was going in and out of the city each day. That's, what, that's what's happening. They're leaving the temple one of the days. He'd been in there teaching. He's now leaving, going out of the temple. And one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. You remember the disciples were from the rural part of the country. They had probably not very often been to the big city. Jerusalem, the, the, the city was, was big and, and the temple was almost a quarter of the city. It was a massive structure. You almost get the sense of, of somebody who it's their first time to the big city. You know, they grew up in Wenatchee and they're gonna go to, you know, downtown Seattle. Look at the Space Needle and the Columbia Tower, right? It's It's impressive. Look at this, look teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Kind of a depressing response. It's all gonna burn. It's all gonna be destroyed. Don't get too enamored with the temple. Don't get too enamored with the big buildings. They're going to be destroyed. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, so they're out of the town. Now they're up on a hill outside and they're kind of looking over the whole city. Peter and James and John and Andrew, kind of a, a small delegation of his disciples, asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus said the temple was gonna be destroyed. That's the clear, plain, simple reading of the text. Before we even launch into what that might mean for end time stuff, let's just start with the fact that they're having a conversation about the temple. And Jesus says, it's gonna be destroyed. Was Jesus telling the truth? He was telling the truth. There are people probably in this room, I know uh, in our church, there are people who have visited Jerusalem, who have been to the Western Wall. There is one small section of one wall that is left or remains. That's all that's left of the temple. It has been not just destroyed, but flattened, absolutely decimated. And it happened in the year 70 AD. Let me, let me give you just a brief history lesson so you can understand this context, okay? Anybody here like history? 
Raise your hand. Okay, good. The rest of you pretend. Just go with us for a minute. We, we're the nerds. We're going to do this. The Roman Empire had spread over the whole entire known world. And about 100 years uh, prior, they had conquered Judea, the area that we know as Israel. This was an important passageway for them because for trade, they needed to get down into Africa. And so it was right in the heart of their, their way down into Africa. And so they had conquered Israel. The Israelites hated the Romans. They thought they were just finally getting to come back to their land and they were going to get to set up God's kingdom on earth. And now all of a sudden these Romans have conquered us and have taken us over. And so for about 100 years, there were battles and there were skirmishes and there were uprisings and there were uh, just all sorts of conflict in the region, right? Surprise, there's been conflict in that region for thousands and thousands of years. But it all came to a head in the year 66 A.D., when a bunch of different Jewish groups really rose up and said, we are going to get rid of the Romans once and for all. And in the years 66 AD through 60, uh, 66 through 70, those years are known as the Great Jewish Revolt. They, the Roman governor, the Roman government, I should say, they don't take kindly to uprisings and revolt. So they said, we're going to put them down, we're going to squash them. And in the year 66 AD, they started going town by town, city by city, and just absolutely decimating the Jewish people. But then something happened. Something really interesting happened. The, the emperor Nero, you've heard of him? Bad dude. Don't, name your, don't even name your dogs after him. Dogs are too cute. Don't name your dog Nero. He lost all of his political power because he was a maniac, and he ended up committing suicide in the year 68 AD. He committed suicide. That led to a year that's known as the year of the four emperors in 69 AD. Four different men took power, took the position of the emperor. Galba was the first one. He was a military leader. He was murdered. Then Otho took over. He was defeated in battle, ran off. He also committed suicide. Uh, a guy named Vitellius, a leader of one group of armies, said, I'm the new emperor. And then a guy named Vespasian said, no, I am. And they battled and Vespasian won. And he eventually became the final emperor. Look, um, this last week, some of our first presidential hopefuls have announced their candidacy, right? We're about to enter into a great year of political, right? I lost the words. I don't even know what to say. I don't care how bad the next year of politics are. It is not four emperors in one year bad. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? This is a great season of chaos, a great season of turmoil, political uh, uh, powers being shaken. And it wasn't just that these emperors were fighting because everything was unstable. Countries started attacking other countries and there was warfare throughout the entire Roman Empire. This is a great season of turmoil. But... In the year 70 AD, after it had finally calmed down, Vespasian sent to his son Titus, go back to Jerusalem and finish what we started. You go take down Jerusalem. I am tired of the political uprising. And so Titus, the son of Vespasian, Titus, who would one day be emperor, went to Jerusalem and annihilated the city. And I can hardly overstate to you how horrific it was. There's a man named Josephus who was a historian. He lived through this, this time. He, he says that armies of Titus surrounded the city and they began to burn it down. They poisoned the water supplies and they burned up the grain storage. So the people of the city of Jerusalem began to starve to death. Josephus tells us that more likely that more people died due to starvation than they did from the actual battle themselves. It was so bad, I don't, I don't mean to be gratuitous here, but it was so bad, he even tells a story one time of a woman being 
uh, attacked and killed by her neighbors because in her starvation, she had roasted her son and eaten half of him and saved the other half, but the neighbors smelled it, came over, killed and ate both of them. I'll read you one quote from Josephus that gives you a, a picture of just how awful it was. But when the Roman soldiers went in numbers into the lanes of the city with their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses where the Jews were fled. And they burnt every soul in them and laid waste a great many of the rest. And when they came to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men and the upper rooms full of dead corpses, that is, of such as died by the famine. Then they stood in a horror at this sight, and they went out without touching anything. And that's Josephus writing shortly after the battles themselves happened. Josephus estimates that 1.1 million Jewish people died during the famine and during the battles, and that another 100,000 were sold into slavery. And as the Roman armies went from the outside of the city, they surrounded it and they worked their way in. They got to the heart of the city. Eventually they came to the temple, the holy place of worship. It says that they set up shrines and they set up worship to their pagan gods. They desecrated God's holy temple. And eventually history's a little shaky on who actually started it, but somebody started it. They burned the place to the ground. It even says they dug up the foundations and just toppled the temple. The temple is gone. It was destroyed. And the city of Jerusalem was rendered uninhabitable. It, you couldn't even live there. So I want you to have that in mind as we read these words of Jesus. Now, Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples in the year, most likely 33 AD. Less than 40 years before this final destruction of the temple. Jesus is speaking about a future event that will happen in the lifetime of many of his listeners. But the point of this, I, I want you to see that this was a world-changing event. This was not just something that happened in Israel. This was not just something that affected the Jewish people. This altered the course of human history. Why? Because when Jerusalem was destroyed, the followers of Jesus scattered and began to share the good news of their crucified and risen Messiah in all the nations of the world. Let's see more about what Jesus says about this, okay? Verse five, Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Remember what I said? Massive conflict throughout the whole empire? Don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Um, I don't have time to go through each and every single one of these, but there's historical record that there were a great many earthquakes and famines that actually took place in this period between when Jesus spoke it and 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Jesus says, these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. During the, during the years of the siege and the battles, many people rose up and said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. You should follow me. I'll lead us out of this mess. Jesus said, don't listen to them. And there were wars and there were famines and there were earthquakes. What is Jesus' word to them? Don't be alarmed. Yeah, but Jesus, that's kind of alarming stuff. Right? Like, 
okay, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but work with me. Like, that's kind of alarming. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. You know what Jesus said? It's to be expected. This is actually the beginning of the birth pangs. This is going to be a long process, Jesus says. Anybody who's, you know, had a baby or been involved in, in childbirth in one way, shape, or a form, you know that it's a process. It takes time. And actually, it's always funny to me, the, the, the first-time parents are having their first baby, and that first contraction comes, and they rush off to the hospital, and the doctor's like, nah, this is going to take a while. Come back in a week, right? It's kind of like what Jesus is saying. Calm down. Don't be anxious. I actually find it, I don't know if ironic's the right word, but just very fascinating that the people who often like to talk the most about the end times can be some of the most alarmed people you will ever meet. But it's directly against what Jesus said. Do not be alarmed. Calm down. You should expect nation to rise against nation. You should expect there to be earthquakes and famines. Don't freak out. That's the new Aaron Gray revised translation, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Don't panic. Don't freak out. This is going to be a process. Continuing in verse 9. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This directly happened in the lives of Jesus' disciples, the men that he was speaking to. They all, at one point or another, went before kings and rulers and spoke the message of the crucified and risen Savior. And they were beaten, and they were put in jail. And all of them, except for one, died a martyr's death. And he lived a martyr's life. John, he was boiled alive in oil that didn't kill him, so they put him on an island to live out the rest of his days. This happened to, their, to those disciples that he's speaking. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're going to say, but say whatever's given you in that hour, for it is not you, you, it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, look, you're gonna have to talk. Let the Holy Spirit work. Let him talk through you. Talk about the gospel. Talk about the good news. And brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. It's very interesting. Um, historians will tell us during this battle that the Jewish people never united against the Romans. In fact, more Jewish people died because they were fighting each other over who would be in charge to then go fight the Romans. I mean, that, that, that's, that's history. And Jesus is prophesying that that's gonna happen. But, but the one thing he says is, you will be hated by all of them for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what is Jesus saying? You can expect fighting, you can expect opposition, you can expect persecution. Trust the Holy Spirit and endure. Don't give up. Persevere. Yes, I know it's hard. Yes, I know the days are difficult. Trust me, do not give up. The one who endures to the end will be saved. All right, we've done the easy stuff. Now here we go. Verse 14. But... When you see the abomination of desolation, that sounds like a heavy metal festival or something that happens in like Tacoma or something, right? <laughs> when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then Mark inserts this parenthetical statement, let the reader understand. Do you get what I'm saying? 
Do you get what Jesus is saying? Let him understand. Think about it. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay. Jesus, as we've seen all throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was very fond of speaking from the Old Testament. If you're a Christian, I would encourage you, read your Old Testament. Don't just read New Testament. Read the Old Testament. That's the Bible that Jesus preached from, okay? I had one Old Testament professor who said, I like to read the Bible. The New Testament's just the answer key. Helps you understand everything in the Old Testament. He was joking, but there's a serious point to be made there. When Jesus uses the phrase abomination of desolation, he is, he's, well, first of all, an abomination, that just means something disgusting, vile, absolutely horrendous. And a desolation is something that just ruins everything. There was a moment that was prophesied in the book of Daniel, but it happened in 168 AD. It happened in the time period in between the Old and the New Testament. That a Syrian king, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, he conquered Jerusalem. Did you know this happened before? Hmm. Did you know the first temple that Solomon built was already conquered and destroyed once before? This king, Antiochus Epiphanes, conquered Jerusalem, killed 40,000 Jews, plundered the temple, set up a statue of Zeus in the holy of holy place, and commanded his men to begin sacrificing pigs and sprinkling pig blood around on the altar as an intentional act of defilement. I mean, this is an intentional thumb on the nose, middle finger. We don't respect you. We don't respect your God. We don't want to have anything to do with respecting you at all. That was the abomination of desolation. It happened once before. You know what Jesus is saying here? You might be on the lookout for something of a repeat performance. Remember what happened, you know, 200 years ago? It's coming again. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then you need to get out of town. Luke, in Luke's telling of, of this same passage, this same story, Luke actually gives us an additional clue that's very helpful. He says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Jesus says, get out of town, flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. It's like if your house is on fire, you don't run back in to grab stuff. You just go, get out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, it's really hard when you're pregnant or nursing an infant to flee for your life, amen? It's really hard when you're pregnant or nursing to take a shower or do anything, right? All the moms said amen. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of, cre of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Jesus is saying it's not going to last forever. But for the sake of the elect, the people whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. The elect are those who belong to God. It's not possible to lead them astray, but Jesus is saying they're gonna be really convincing. It's, they're gonna be so convincing that they, it's possible they could even lead those who truly belong to God away from worship of him. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. So at this point, let me just say this. At this point, there might be an objection raised. Okay, wait a minute here, Aaron. 
you know, you're talking about this all happening before 70 AD, but what about this great tribulation, the likes of which the world has never seen since the beginning of creation to the end of time? This is the greatest tribulation. I understand that this stuff that happened in 70 AD was bad, but surely we've seen worse tribulations. The, the, the Holocaust, we've seen the Rwandan genocide, we've seen worse things, right? Let me remind you of the way that the Bible uses that type of language, hyperbolic language, big, over-the-top language to drive home a point. I could take you, I don't have time, but I could take you to 20 different prophetic passages in the Old Testament where it says that some event is going to happen and it's going to be the likes of which the world has never seen before. One of my favorite examples of that is actually in the book of 2 Kings. It's a historical book. And all the kings were really bad, but there were two that were actually pretty good. And it says about both kings, he was a king, the likes of which had never been before and the likes of which never came again. And then five chapters later, he was a good king, the likes of which had never come before and the likes of which had never been again. Like, well, hold on a second. I thought you just said. It's the way that the biblical authors speak. They're speaking big. They're saying it's the greatest of all time. It's gonna be massive. It's kind of like, you know, you're watching a baseball game and the announcer goes, he hit that thing a mile. No, he didn't. He hit it 384 feet. That's not even a 10th of a mile, right? Calm down. I don't know who that was. That's for somebody, right? I'm just saying you need to understand the way that the biblical writers would speak. So it is very possible. When Jesus is saying this, he's using the language of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. He's saying this, this destruction of the temple is going to be one of the most uh, intense things you've ever seen, the likes of which the world has never seen. And be on guard against false Christ and false messiahs. Okay, that's the abomination of desolation, but we're still getting, there's more fun stuff. It's like one of my pastors used to say, when you're on thin ice, you might as well dance, right? Let's keep going. Verse 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Okay, ready? I said it earlier, I'm going to say it again. It's a little controversial. I don't believe that Jesus is yet speaking of his final return. Go with me. Nobody threw like a can of soup. I'm doing good so far. When Jesus talks about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and the stars falling from the heavens, is he meaning that literalistically or is he using Old Testament language to speak of a different reality? When you read the Old Testament, when the prophets speak about the sun, moon, and the stars, they are very often, almost always, a symbol for political powers, kings, governments, and rulers. Again, I could give you 20 examples. Let me just give you one from Isaiah chapter 13. This is a prophecy that was spoken about Babylon, one of the most wicked nations to ever exist. This is what Isaiah says. I saw in the night visions. I'm sorry, that's wrong. Uh, The oracle concerning Babylon. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations, what's it say? Will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. The prophet Isaiah did not literally mean that the sun and the moon and the stars are going to cease to exist. They still exist today. 
but Babylon sure doesn't, right? This is the way that Jesus is speaking. Jesus is, is speaking here in Mark chapter 13 that the political powers that be are going to be shaken. All these kings, all these governments, all these rulers that think they're so smug and they could never be shaken, they will be shaken. You know why? Because there is only one true king over all other kings. His name is Jesus Christ. Everything else that looks so secure, everything else that seems so permanent is just a flash in the pan. It's a blip in history compared to the one who rules and reigns over all history. Go back to Mark 13. After that tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers, the rulers, the kings in the heavens will be shaken. And then they, these rulers, will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Jesus is here yet again referencing an Old Testament prophecy. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. There's a passage in Daniel 7. I have been waiting all week to read this to you. I'm so excited to read you Daniel 7. I'll put it up on the screen, but you should go to Daniel 7. Verse 13, the prophet Daniel's having a vision. I love this vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Basically, he's just like a person. He's a human being, but he's riding on the clouds of heaven. How can this be? How can he just be a, a human, and yet he has these divine attributes. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Church, that's a prophecy about Jesus he is the one like a son of man who is yet human but also divine. He is the one who is presented on the clouds of heaven before God as being the one true king over all nations, peoples, places, and times. And what's particularly relevant to our discussion today as we're reading Mark 13, which direction is this son of man heading, as it were? Is he heading downward away from God to the earth, like in a return, or is he heading upward toward God in a presentation and a vindication that he is the rightful king. You see that? I heard some murmuring. Okay, I hope that's a good sign. This is so fun, you have no idea. <laughs> Jesus' disciples had a really hard time grasping that he was gonna die. They just, they didn't get it. Jesus told them, I'm gonna die. They're like, what? I'm like, I'm gonna die. No, no, you won't. They had a really hard time grasping that he was going to rise, come back to dead, from the dead. They had a really hard time grasping that he was going to then ascend in the clouds of heaven to the Father to sit at his right hand to rule and reign. And then they probably had an even harder time that he would descend in the clouds coming back to him. My belief, and you can disagree with me on this, I don't believe that Jesus was jumping all the way to the very end. I believe he's teaching about his ascension and his vindication. The, the, the nations will be shaken and it will be proof that everything that Jesus said was true and that he is the rightful king over all of the world. This is a, this is a conversation about Jesus' ascension. I, I would say this. The ascension of Jesus is an incredibly important doctrine that sometimes gets overlooked in the American church. I hear people say to me sometimes, boy, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was here, physically present, we could walk, talk together the way the disciples were? That would be great in one sense, but Jesus actually said, it's better that I go away and I send you the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because that means that God is now present with all of his people, not just 
in one location at one time, but with all of his people. When we open the Bible, we hear the word of God proclaimed, he's with us. When we sing and join our voices together, he's with us. When we share the Lord's table in just a few minutes together, he's with us. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all nations. That's good news, right? That's good news. Jesus' ascension is an incredibly important doctrine. And at the end, I'm going to give you some further Bible verses for reading and discussion and, and in your community groups to study it out further. And then he says, from that time, political upheaval, my ascension and my vindication being proved, then I will send out the angels and gather, God will send out uh, the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Let me, let me do this. This is probably the, the heart of the passage right here. And I would like to offer you a paraphrase, okay? This is, again, the new Aaron Gray revised translation. Take it for what it is, but let me just give you a paraphrase that I think what Jesus is saying here. This is what he's saying. There will be a time of great political upheaval and it will feel like the world is bursting apart at the seams. But this upheaval will prove that I have ascended to the Father's right hand and I am the rightful king over the whole earth. And this upheaval will make it so that the good news of my kingdom will go out to the whole earth and then people from every nation will be saved and brought into my kingdom. That's what I believe Jesus is saying in this passage. It's loaded with symbolism. It's loaded with meaning. That's what I believe that Jesus is telling his disciples. Let's keep going. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. Let me give you an analogy, Jesus says. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, know that summer is near. It's like, it's like some of you who have allergies. Like as soon as you see the flowers start to bud, know that your end is near, right? So also when you see these things taking place, know that he is at the very, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation, this, this verse right here is why I believe so strongly that Jesus was speaking about the immediate events of 70 AD. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus was speaking these words in 33. It happened in 70. It's less than one generation later. The temple was destroyed and Jesus was vindicated and proven to be true. Now here it is, ready? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Do you trust in God's word that much? What is it in your life that seems so unshakable? What is it that you think is a firm foundation under your feet? If it is anything other than the word of God, it's shaking sand. It's, it's, it's moving. It's shaking, but only God's word will last forever. And here we are at what I view as the hinge verse that now turns this discussion to the end of the age and the return of Christ. Let's read that verse again. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Okay, he's, he's talking about the destruction of the temple. It's almost as if Jesus says, oh yeah, and by the way, this day of judgment that's coming on the temple and that's coming on Jerusalem, that reminds me, there's a greater day coming, a, a final day of judgment where heaven and earth will pass away. But my word is what's gonna last. You can trust me. My word is what will endure. But concerning that day or hour, the final day of judgment, the final passing away of heaven and earth, no man knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Does it bother anyone else in this room that Jesus says he doesn't know the date of his return? Like, how does the Father know and not the Son? I don't know. It's, it's a mystery of the Trinity. But Jesus said it, so it has to be true. 
Jesus says, I don't even know the day or the hour of my return. And yet every five years, somebody writes some book saying that they know the day and the hour when Christ will return. It's been a few years. What was the last guy, Harold Camping? Like, we're due. It's coming, I promise you. Especially with the political season coming up. Now I'm just ranting. Let me get back to the text. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Now I believe Jesus is speaking of his final return. And he gives an analogy. It's like, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. I, I used to think that the rooster crows and the morning were the same thing. They're not, because anybody who's had a rooster knows they crow way before you want it to be morning. In the evening or at midnight when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. All right. We have covered a lot of ground. You should pat yourselves on the back. We made it through. I want, I want you to hear a few things from, from, from Jesus about what this means for us, okay? The temple is destroyed. It really happened. And the first thing that it proves is that all of Jesus' words are true. Jesus spoke it. He said it was going to happen, and it happened. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you have to reckon with that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you have to uh, try to give some explanation, understanding. If Jesus said these things were going to happen and they happened, that means I have to take all of his words seriously. Jesus said he can forgive sin. Jesus said that he can, he can give you rest for your soul. Jesus said that anyone who trusts in him, who believes in him, even though they die, yet will they live again and one day will be raised with Christ, like Christ. If you're, not a, if you're not a Christian, you have to reckon with that. Jesus spoke these words and it proves that what he said was true. There's another thing that's really important about this. The temple is destroyed because it's no longer needed. The temple was the place where God and man came together. The priests served there as like mediator between God and man. You know who stands in place now? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He is the temple, he is where God and man meet together. He is the mediator between God and man. Because of Jesus, I can now go directly into the holiest place. I can go directly before my Father. And you know what's even more wonderful? The New Testament says that you and I, who are Christians, we're like living stones being built together into a new temple. That we're being built into a, a, a place, a habitation for God. Tell you what, I would rather be a pebble in some obscure wall of this new living temple than have the whole big glorious temple still standing to this day. Amen? That's good news for us. And I would also say this, that day of judgment, it came. And Jerusalem was judged and the temple was judged. And Jesus spoke of another day when the whole world would be judged. And it is a fearsome day. It is a, a fierce day of God's wrath. But if you are a Christian, your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago at the cross of Jesus Christ. And you have nothing to fear whatsoever because Jesus took your judgment for you. And the future judgment day that awaits is one for Christians where we will be judged just for our rewards. 
our faithfulness to Jesus. If you are not a Christian, one day you will stand before God and you will have to give an account for your life. And I beg of you, please don't think, well, maybe my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and that's good enough for God. No, first of all, they don't. Trust me, I can ask your family. But even if they did, God's standard is perfection. And you fall far short of that standard. It's not more good than bad, it's perfect. Trust in Jesus. Would this, would this be the day when you trust in Jesus? You have nothing to fear from the future judgment if you are in Christ. Your judgment is done. Jesus paid it in full. So how ought we to live? Let me give us a couple of practical things in, in closing here. Regardless of your specific view of the end times and the millennium or the rapture or preterism or futurism or all those sorts of big words that people love to throw around, how should we live? What does this chapter tell us for all Christians throughout all ages, throughout all times? Let me give you seven things in closing. Number one, a Christian, all Christians throughout all times should be on guard against false messiahs and false teachers. There are still, to this day, those who would speak in the name of Jesus and would speak lies, okay? And, and let me just say this too, lest we get too hyper about it. A false teacher or a false messiah is not a preacher who sometimes makes a mistake or says something wrong. I know that sounds defensive because I just preached this controversial, but um, I, I just mean that, you know, all of us, we're all learning, we're all growing. Don't be quick to throw stones or throw somebody out as the false teacher, right? Have grace in that way, but be on your guard for those who would say, what is not in alignment with the truth of God's word, the clear, closed-handed issues, those things that are pertaining to salvation and God. Be on your guard. Number two, all Christians throughout all times should not be anxious over wars, natural disasters, etc. <laughs> Easier said than done, right? What did we just read about uh, this last week about Iran developing their nuclear program and Russia helping them and North Korea just doing their thing? And it's like, that's kind of scary stuff. Jesus said, don't be anxious. The nations are gonna plot. The nations are gonna rage. You calm down. Don't freak out. That's again, the new revised version of Aaron Grace translation, right? That's what Jesus' word to us is. Don't freak out. Number three, all Christians throughout all times should be patient as God brings his story to its proper conclusion. God is sovereign over history. He's bringing a story to its designed outcome, to its designed end, and our job is to be patient. Do you know that the first Christians within a few decades of Jesus' ascension got a little antsy? Hey, Jesus said he was coming back. Jesus said he was returning. Where is he? It's been like 30 years. We're like, hey, it's been like 2,000 years. The apostle Peter in one of his letters writes and he explains, he says, look, God's not, God's not being slow as some people count slowness. He's he doesn't think about time the way that we do. With him, a, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He's not being slow, Peter says. He's being patient because God's heart and desire is that many would be saved and brought into his kingdom. So God's not being slow. He's being patient. And so as such, we are invited to be patient as we wait for his return. Number four, all Christians throughout all times should expect persecution but trust the Holy Spirit. You know, I read this week about uh, a group of Christians in the Middle East who were kidnapped, abducted, taken out into uh, the middle of the sea, into shark-infested waters, and were thrown overboard and were killed because of their faith in Jesus. There's actually an upcoming, I think it's upcoming, or it maybe this week, 
uh, meeting with the UN where people are presenting on the persecution of Christians that's taking place across the world right now. It's an unspoken genocide. There are millions and millions of Christians who are being killed right now simply because of their association with Jesus. It's heartbreaking. And I know that maybe some of you have, have thought things like me. I'm, I'm an American. I'm doing pretty good. I've never had a gun put to my head. I've never had anyone threaten to you know, feed me the wild animals or cut off my head. And Jesus, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you when you're persecuted and when you are reviled. That means like mocked and despised. And when people say all sorts of false things about you. Can we say that Christians get reviled in our country? Disdained, mocked, made fun of? Idiots. Believe in Jesus. Can we say that Christians get falsehood spoken about them? Yeah. So according to Jesus, we experience two out of the three. Be on your guard. We will expect, we should expect opposition and persecution, but ours is not to kick and scream and fight and throw a big fit. You know what we're called to do by Jesus in this passage? Trust the Holy Spirit. Trust the Holy Spirit. He will give us the words to say. Number five, all Christians throughout all times should trust every word of Jesus as truth. May we not pick and choose what things we wanna believe. May we take God at his word, amen? That's why I, I hope and pray for the majority of the teaching at Sound City Bible Church to just be line by line, word by word through books of the Bible because that's important for us to believe every word of Jesus. Number six, all Christians throughout all times should not try to predict the future but need to remain awake, right? Don't spin out on when is Jesus gonna return? I need to guess the date. No, remain awake, active, alert, working. Maybe you have somebody in your life who's a disciple who's not very awake. Maybe they're kind of asleep, not focused on the coming kingdom of God. Maybe you need to shake them. Hey, stay awake. Jesus said stay awake, remember? And lastly, number seven, all Christians throughout all times should eagerly long for, yet patiently wait for the return of Jesus. You know, it's okay to pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. God, hurry up. This world is broken and messed up. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of devastation. Jesus, would you come soon? That's okay. We can pray that way. Even as we are patient. When Jesus returns, the Bible says that all who are dead are gonna rise. And those who have trusted in Jesus will rise to everlasting life. A body free from sickness and sin and disease and allergies and right? A world free from devastation, a world free from death, a new creation. This, this earth will pass away and God will recreate a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, which will live with him forever in perfection. Lord, haste the day. One of the songs we're going to sing in a minute even says it out. Lord, haste the day. Would you hurry that day when my faith becomes sight? This quote from Anthony Hokema says it well. Our entire Christian life is to be lived in light of the tension between what we already are in Christ and what we hope someday to be. We look back with gratitude to the finished work and decisive victory of Jesus Christ, and we look forward with eager anticipation to the second coming of Christ when he shall usher in the final phase of his glorious kingdom and shall bring to completion the good work he has begun in us. We pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. I'm gonna call us to a time of response now. 
we're gonna respond in a variety of ways. The first way we're gonna respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. So I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward and collect. Now, if, if, you're, if you're a guest, you're under no obligation to give, but we want to give because first of all, God is our treasure. We want to treasure him and honor him above all else. Second of all, we know that our possessions are, they're passing away. And so we wanna give with a generous spirit. Briefly, I'll just remind you if, you, if you would like this information on ways to give, you can give cash or check here. You can give online at Sound City Bible Church uh, slash give, or you can text to give, and they'll leave that number up on the screen. You guys can collect the offering now. While they're collecting the offering, I'll give a few discussion questions for us to talk about this week at um, you know, community groups or in your homes or company picnic, whatever you want to do, it's fine. <laughs> First question is this, what does it mean that Jesus' kingdom is already but not yet? And how are we to live in that tension? Second question, read Daniel, Daniel chapter seven. I'm gonna give you guys some Bible study. Daniel seven, Matthew 26, John 20, Acts one, Philippians two, Hebrews 10. I'll, I'll put all these into the email that we send out every week. Why is the doctrine of Jesus' ascension so important? Read those verses and look at the ascension of Jesus. Third question, how does the destruction of the temple in 70 AD prove that Jesus' claims were true and what's the significance to us? When it comes to Christ's return, are you both patient and eager? Where might you be impatient or anxious or fearful? Or where might you be apathetic or kind of uncaring? If I had to make a guess, I, I would guess that there's probably a number of you who have been kind of put off by the way in which some people have talked about the end times. And so maybe you've kind of just re retreated from the whole conversation and you're kind of apathetic about it. Eh, I don't really care. Eh, Jesus will come back someday. I don't really know. Or do you eagerly long for his return? Number five, where are you experiencing opposition or persecution because of Jesus? And then not just yourself, but what persecution do we see in the world? Let's share and open up about that. And then lastly, I would just ask you to take some time in your groups this week to pray. Pray that we would remain faithful to the end. Pray that God would grant relief to our Christian brothers and sisters who are being violently persecuted. Pray that, that we would be faithful like them. Pray that Jesus would return soon. I want you to pray. I would invite you to take some time at your groups this week and pray. We're also gonna respond through the celebration of the Lord's table. This is for Christians. If you're a Christian, even if you're visiting or a guest, you're welcome to come with us and take communion at the table. If you're not, I, I invite you. Give your sin to Jesus. Trust in him. Come take communion for the first time today as a Christian. Communion is where we remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out for our salvation. And today as we celebrate this meal together, Here's how I want you to celebrate it. I invite you to celebrate it as a foretaste of the coming meal that we will share with Jesus upon his return. The Bible says we'll feast. That's good news, amen? So let this meager meal be a symbol of the coming feast when Christ returns. We're also gonna sing. Like I said, Pastor Joe is gonna just lead us uh, solo. It's not because the band got raptured or anything like that. It's because... It's because we want to be reminded that we're the people of God and he is our God and we're gonna lift our voices together. So you are the band. So I encourage you, lift your hands, lift your hands, lift your voices, lift your hearts, sing to God. I'll invite you to stand and I'll pray and then we'll come forward and respond when you're ready. I will say this too. One other way that you can respond if you want is uh, through prayer. We'll have some leaders and people over off to the side here. If you'd like to pray while we're singing, if there's hardship or something you're going through in your life right now, we would love to just talk and pray with you even right now. No need to wait till the end of the service. Let me pray for us now. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Jesus to live and die and rise in our place for our sins. God, I pray 
that you would help us now as we sing and respond to do so with a heart of eager longing for the day of your return. Jesus, may we trust your word that it's true. May we trust it more than we trust anything else. God, I ask that our, our song to you now would be beautiful in your ears, not because of our great singing voices, God, but because of our hearts of worship to you. We love you, God. We trust you. May we remain faithful to the end by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.